If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We're going to do one verse today. In fact, we're going to do one word from one verse. And I am being serious. This is a topical study. And so, um, as I mentioned last week, we're going to be dealing with the subject of God's wrath. And so before I get into that, I would like to make a number of comments just to kind of frame this thing, kind of a a barrage of random points, not really random, but various points that I think will be helpful for setting the tone for this whole thing. So let me pray for us, and then we will get going. God, we love you. We love you for who you are and how you have revealed yourself to us, God. It is all so very important to us. If it has been revealed, if it is in your word, then we need to know it, God. We want to know it. We must know it. And there are certain things that are more confusing to us than others. There are certain things that are more challenging to us that, that may even be offensive to, to some people. But God, you are glorified. You are glorified by your character, by your nature, your essence, your attributes. And we want to know you, God. So as we study this very difficult topic today, I pray that you would receive glory. I pray, Father, that it would take us into a deeper place of worship, a deeper place of reverence and awe, a deeper place of gratitude, Father, a deeper place of urgency, And so I pray, God, that you would uh, move mightily amongst us as we consider the topic, the doctrine of divine wrath. So I pray your blessing upon this time in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, as I had already said before a couple times now, the book of Romans is a gospel masterpiece. It's glorious, it's one of the most wonderful letters in the New Testament. And Paul spends a good bit of time in the beginning of the letter helping us to understand that outside of Christ, we're in a a bad place. We are separated from God. Paul essentially starts with the bad news. Now the greeting, the, the introduction to the letter, the first 17 verses, Paul starts by pouring his heart out. He doesn't open up verse 1, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven. Right? He doesn't do that. He starts by saying, hey, it's Paul... I love you guys. I pray for you guys. I can't wait to come and to bless you and to impart spiritual gifts to you. I can't wait to come and preach the gospel and to have fruit among you. And he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And so it was a gospel greeting, it was a gospel introduction. And Paul starts there. But then he he transitions at verse 18 and he starts to get into the bad news. And that's necessary, guys, and you have to understand that Paul is doing this because he loves them. Do you get that? Paul is speaking the truth to the Roman Christians there because he loves them. And he's telling them a very hard truth. And so he transitions at this point and he begins to make his case that before Christ, outside of Christ, we are all guilty before God. And that is love, guys. That is love. The culture that we live in today would not tell you that that's love. It would be just the opposite. But the Bible says that faithful are the wounds of a friend. 
A friend will tell you the truth even when it hurts. An enemy will not. It says deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. They're not going to tell you, they're not going to tell you the hard truth. And so Paul does that very thing. He tells them the hard truth, the necessary truth, and he does it in love. He does it in love. So I want you to understand that. And this is not a popular topic. You know, I joked about it last week. I said that I can't wait to, to get here and start preaching hellfire and, and wrath because I'm, you know, I'm a southerner. And that's, that's really one of the most parroted uh, stereotypes of an evangelical preacher is that we're all about wrath and condemnation and hellfire. Especially southerners really get pegged with that. And I'm not saying that it doesn't happen, but honestly, if you look far and wide, rarely will you find someone who actually preaches that stuff. People stay away from it to the best of their ability. They don't want to get anywhere near it. And it is an offensive topic to some people, and understandably so. And I know that I joked about it last week because I wanted to make light of it a little bit. I wanted to kind of uh, you know, lighten the mood in the room, but... Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's a very respected author, pastor. He, he uh, passed away, um, I don't know, maybe it was 40, 50 years ago, but uh, maybe longer than that. But uh, it was said of him that he was a very humorous guy. And he was asked, why is it that in the pulpit you seldom uh, employ that, that humor? And he said that I find in the pulpit I'm in the awful position of standing between a holy God and, and sinful men. And I find such a position too appalling for humor. I thought, that is, that's real, man. That's deep. I get where he's coming from, and I, I feel the weight of that. These are weighty matters. These are very heavy, serious, eternal matters. And so it's good to be lighthearted from time to time, but this is also something that is so very serious and it's so very necessary for us to, to understand and you know, guys, there's a lot of people in our day and age who want to erase this altogether. They would like to completely do away with the notion that God is a God of judgment or, or wrath or anger. And you may know that song, In Christ Alone, right? It's, a, it's a, more of a, a, a modern song, but it kind of has uh, the, the feel of a hymn to it. In the Presbyterian Church, the, the USA, there are different divisions within the Presbyterian Church, but one in particular that is quite liberal. They sought to do away with the line, uh, for on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They wanted to take that out so that they could include that song in their hymnal. Now, the writer of that song, the Gettys, they wouldn't have any, anything to do with that, but the reason they wanted to take that out is because that says, they said that it's, it comes awfully close to saying that God killed Jesus. And essentially that is what it says. And that's what the Bible says, that, that it pleased God to crush His Son. And we'll, we'll talk more about that, but they don't want to believe or teach that God is a God of wrath and judgment and that sin had to be atoned for. Sin had to be paid for. What that is, here's a, and just let me say this, I'm going to give you guys a lot of theology today, and this is a good thing, alright? We're all students here, and so it's not like the pastors are into theology and then the congregation just gets the whatever. No, we're students, I, I study to teach, I'm here to teach, you're here to learn, and we want to be good students of theology and the Word, amen? And so what they wanted to do away with was the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ or the vicarious atonement 
of Christ or the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That is to say that Jesus paid our penalty on the cross in our stead. He died for us there. When Jesus was hanging on that cross, He bore the sin of the world on Himself and God judged Him there on the cross. And if you put your trust in Jesus for salvation, your sins have been washed away because they were paid for because of another, because of Jesus. Now people, they don't even want to believe that that's why Jesus died on the cross. What they wanted to replace that song, the lyrics with was, on the cross where Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Okay, and they they turn it into something altogether different, but they want to do away with any notion that Jesus was being judged by God on the cross on our behalf. And that's a deadly dangerous thing to do. That is unraveling God's Word. There was a, uh, a theologian uh, early on in the 20th century, and speaking of liberal theology, that is, uh, they, they began to try to do away with the miracles, to do away with wrath, to say that the Bible wasn't really literal, and on and on it went. Well, this is what this, this particular theologian said about that kind of thinking. He said that it's a theology that could be characterized this way. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without justice through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. I'll say that again. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without justice through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. If you start pulling pieces apart, the whole house will fall. You understand that? And that's why we believe the Bible to be totally literal. We, we read it at face value. We don't apologize for it. We don't try to bend it and mold it into something or take things away that, that we don't like. We're not selective in that. We can't do that. And the bottom line, guys, is that wrath is undeniably present in the Scriptures from cover to cover. And I don't have the liberty to pick and choose what I believe and teach. I have to be true to what the Scriptures say. You have to be true to what the Scriptures say and teach. I stand accountable before God that I preach this truth to you guys today. And let me just say, most church gurus would tell me don't do it. They would not advise this. You know, people out there that are very concerned with growing their churches numerically, they're not going to talk about this kind of stuff, okay? And uh, they're going to say things like, look, we all know we're bad people. We don't need to hear that. We just need to be uplifted. We want people to feel good when they leave this place, okay? They want to be motivational speakers. They want to give you self-help, but they don't want to really preach the whole truth or the whole God to their people. All right, I can't do that. Now, we may be tempted to apologize for God's wrath. But God is glorified by His wrath. you understand that? God is glorified by wrath, and we'll get into that. And as I said before, there are things, anything that's been revealed about God to us in the Scriptures, we need to know it. It's been said that it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Right? I would say that it takes a a true knowledge of God to make a whole Christian. And I fear that... uh, Too many people have a very low or inaccurate or uninformed idea of God. A very low view of God. 
sometimes I hear things that people say about God or, and, and I think, how, how could they think that? Where, where does that come from? And that's a very disturbing reality. Now, A.W. Tozer, he says this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. So what you think about God when He pops into your head is the most important thing about you. And if you think of God in a very high and transcendent and majestic way, you have a very high view of Him, that is a wonderful thing. That will usher you into a place of worship and gratitude and service and obedience. But if you have a, a very low view of God, in a sense, you stand in judgment of God. You decide what you believe and what you don't believe. And you hold God accountable to your own standards of right and wrong. And then God exists to serve your purposes, whatever that may be. And He's useful to you at times and not useful to you at other times. That's what a low view of God does. And so to impugn God's character because of His divine wrath reveals that we have a high view of ourselves and a low view of God. Think about that. To impugn God's character because He is a God of wrath is to have a very high view of ourselves and a very low view of God. When is the last time in prayer that you thanked God that He was a God of wrath? Now, so often in prayer, our prayers consist of wish lists. And we go right into it. But that's not the way that Jesus taught us to pray. We ought to start with worship, with recognizing God as the great and holy, most high God, and to offer Him praise and thanksgiving. And so, at times, I'll, I'll try to go to that place and I'll just begin to list off all of these things about God that are so lovely and so wonderful and that I worship Him for. But I will often always try to Remember to worship Him because He is a God of justice. He is a God of wrath. He is a God of anger. And so, I just want to develop this a little bit as we uh, consider this one verse in Romans 1.18. So, if you have your Bibles, please look at that verse. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So as I said, this is the point where Paul now turns. He's going to get into the, to the heart of the matter. He's going to spend a lot of time talking about the glorious gospel truths, but he has to start with the bad news. He has to start with the bad news. And the bad news is that there is a God... And He does have wrath. It is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God is a God of wrath. It's revealed from heaven against anyone and everyone who has not accepted the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I want to start by talking about God's wrath amongst other attributes. Okay? And so Sinclair Ferguson, he's a, he's a contemporary pastor, author. He was asked, what is God doing right now? When asked the question, what is God doing right now, his answer was this, God is simultaneously exercising all of His attributes. That's what God is doing right now. 
He is exercising all of His attributes. He is exercising omnipotence, all power. Omniscience, He is all-knowing. Wisdom, He has perfect wisdom and insight into everything. We're always trying to figure things out. We're always trying to figure out what's the best way to go. God has complete, full knowledge and wisdom at all times. Omnipresence, God is everywhere all at once. Providence, God is tying things together. This is one of the most amazing things about God to me is His providence. When something just falls right into place, when it just happened to work out at that moment in time that this thing happened, whatever the case may be, you fill that blank in yourself. And you stop and think about all of the things that God had to do to align that situation up at that point in time for that to fall right into place. Our minds can't even begin to comprehend the depth of that. And so God is in His providence, His love, His provision, all of this simultaneously. And I, and I say that to make a point, but I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute. I want, I want to kind of move on. So the Bible says that God is light, right? God is light. He is purity. He is knowledge. Uh, darkness typically represents wickedness or evil or ignorance. God is love. God is love. The Bible says that He is love. God demonstrates the highest essence of love. Because that's who He is. That's who He is. God is love. God is light. The Bible says that God is holy. God is holy. That means that there is no one or nothing like Him. He is totally different. He is set apart. He is high and lifted up. There has never been anything or will ever be anything like the Lord. He is holy. He is perfectly pure. Now, the reason that I, I say all of these things is because God, I wouldn't say, is wrath in the same way that I would say that He is love. Okay? Wrath is somewhat of a secondary attribute. God is holy. And because God is holy, He must be wrathful. But when God demonstrates love towards me, it's because that's who He is. When God demonstrates His love towards you, it's because He is a God of love. When God demonstrates wrath, that's because He's holy. Okay, you following me? You tracking with me? So wrath is kind of a secondary attribute to holiness. Now God is light. God is love. God is holy. And because God is holy, He is also a God of wrath. He exercises wrath against sin because He is holy. Now, having said that, I want to share with you this, this uh, attribute of God. It's called God's simplicity. God's simplicity. This is kind of a confusing one, but uh, over time, it's kind of, I think it's making more and more sense to me. God cannot be separated into parts. That's, that's the simple definition of God's simplicity. And it's like, okay, what in the world does that mean? Well, I would say this. The Bible says that God is love. The Bible says that God is light. The Bible says that God is holy. Does that mean that He's one-third light, one-third holy, one-third love? No, it doesn't. So, what God is, He is completely, simultaneously, and indivisibly. Cannot be divided. He is all of those things all at once. And why that is important to us, because just as much as God is love, 
He is also holy. You understand that? God is completely love, but He is completely holy. And because God is completely holy, it necessitates wrath. Alright? Does that make sense? You following me? And that leads to the next thing, God's infinitude. God is infinite. Everything that God is in His essence and nature, He has always been and will forever be without limit. God is infinite. Alright, so God's love, His wisdom, His holiness, His power without limit has always been and will always be without limit. Therefore, so is His wrath. So is His wrath. It's important to, for us to understand this about God. We have to start with God's attributes. We have to start with the fact that God is who He is, completely holy. It cannot be separated. He doesn't exercise one attribute over another. He is completely all of this at all times. And just as much as He is love, He is holy, which also means He is a God of wrath. And we can't minimize that. That's what we try to do. We minimize this attribute and make really big uh, deal of this other attribute over here, and we simply can't do that. Alright? So, with that, let's talk a little bit about what God's wrath is. What God's wrath is. So, Wayne Grudem... Systematic Theology. It's a great book. I would encourage anyone in here to get your hands on that book. It's very helpful. He says, God's wrath means that He intensely hates sin. God intensely hates sin. That is a very simple definition for wrath. And sin means missing the mark. It's an archery term. You aim at the bullseye, but you miss. You missed it. Okay? We have all missed the mark. And when we sin, God hates that. God hates sin. That is very clear. Now, there are two Greek words most often used for wrath. And there's some significance to this, so I want to share these with you. One is thumos, from which we get the word thermometer or thermos. It means fierceness, indignation, hot anger, passion. That's, that's one word, and that, that usually speaks of a volatile kind of an anger, kind of to fly off the handle, lose your temper, and do something that you're going to regret later. That's that kind of wrath, and I think most of us in here have experienced that. Have you experienced that before? Have you had that kind of wrath, and then later you totally felt like you blew it, and then comes the, the discouragement, or the depression, or the regret, whatever... That's, that really is the, the kind of wrath that man most often exhibits. Well, there's a different kind of wrath. There's another word, and it's called orge. And it means to team or to swell. And thus implies that it's not a sudden outburst, but rather referring to God's fixed, controlled, passionate feeling against sin. It's a settled indignation. And so it's not temperamental, it's not explosive, it's settled. I would add to that it's calculated, it's fixed, and it's righteous. Okay, so the word orge, uh, Strong's, they say it like this, it takes over when Thumas has subsided. And so with that I would say, you know, with, with men and women, this is what happens. We either explode in the moment... 
and then we regret it. We, we were totally out of balance in, in what we distributed. You understand what I'm saying? Like oftentimes we get madder and we react way worse than the situation necessitated. It's a weak kind of an anger or a wrath. Okay, that's man's wrath. Or we get angry and then it subsides and then we're just passive and we don't deal with the issue at all. So oftentimes we go from exploding impulsively or not dealing with the situation at all. Well, that is not how God is. God's wrath is calculated. It is settled. It is fixed. And God doesn't just throw a tantrum and explode, but God also doesn't just let it pass by. God's wrath is being stored up and it will be meted out with perfect precision, with perfect righteousness, with perfect justice. We have to understand that. That's When we're talking about wrath, that's what we're talking about with God. And it's not cruelty. That's what we've got to get straight, guys. Some people hate the idea of wrath because they think, oh, well, that's just cruel. But that's not it at all. It's God's righteous hatred against that which is bad. Okay? He's not wrathful because He's cruel. He's wrathful because He's good. He's wrathful because He is holy. He is wrathful because He is right. And so it's only right that He exercise judgment against that which is wrong. Now, it's been said that God exercises wrath in two ways. One, indirectly, through natural consequences of violating His universal moral law. This is from uh, MacArthur. He says this. And two, directly through personal intervention. So God will either just let things happen. He's set things in place. His universal moral law. And if you break it, there are consequences. People sleeping around, having sex outside of marriage, being very promiscuous, are highly likely to get STDs. That would be a natural consequence uh, of what happens when you break God's moral law. He had a higher standard for, for marriage and for sex, and it was not to be promiscuous, and that would be, a, uh, that would be a consequence of violating that moral code that God has set. But then there's the, he deals directly, personal intervention. And we see a lot of that in the Old Testament. And we'll see a lot of that in Revelation. And so there are basically six types of wrath related to God. Six types of wrath related to God. Okay, you ready for this? The first one, eternal wrath. Eternal wrath. And that is hell. Okay? Now, people definitely don't like to talk about hell. They like to do away with that as much as they possibly can. And it's not easy, I think, for any, any preachers or anybody to really go there because it is a, a very challenging thing. But... What we have to understand about hell is what that tells us ultimately is just how holy God really is. Okay? This is eternal punishment. And it wasn't designed for men and women. It was designed for Satan and his demons. The lake of fire. God created that according to the Bible for, the, for Satan and his, his demons. But, sinful men and women, men and women who have not been forgiven of their transgressions at the cross will go there. It is a place of eternal judgment. And, you know, to us, as I said, that doesn't make sense to us. It seems like it's too much. It's too harsh. Eternally, eternal separation from God. But as I said last week, we are so desensitized to sin. 
we have such a small concept in our minds and hearts of just how bad sin is. We're so desensitized. The stuff that we see, the things that that have been implanted in our minds, the things that really we are bombarded with on a daily basis. We can see or hear the worst atrocities and we don't even flinch. Well, God is not that way. We can't even begin to understand or fathom just how pure God actually is. And He does not tolerate sin, not the smallest infraction. And so, hell is an eternal wrath. Then there's eschatological wrath. That, that is to say, end times wrath. What, much of what you see in Revelation, God has fixed a day, a time, when He will pour out His wrath on this world. It will be a worldwide cataclysmic type of wrath. And that leads me to the next one, cataclysmic wrath. That is another kind of wrath that we see with God. It's cosmic. It's seismic. The flood, that worldwide judgment... Sodom and Gomorrah, when God rained down fire and brimstone on those, on those towns, that was cataclysmic wrath. God has consequential wrath. That is, that which comes upon us because of our deliberate disobedience. When we choose to do things in rebellion to God, there will be consequences for that. Then there's divine rejection. Divine rejection. In Psalm 95.11, God referring to the nation of Israel when they were in the wilderness, they were complaining, they were murmuring, and God said, in My wrath, I have sworn they will not enter into My rest. God rejected them. And then Matthew 7, that haunting passage where Jesus speaking, they came and they knocked and they said, Lord, Lord, We've done all these wonderful things for you. And he said, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. That is divine rejection. That is another type of wrath. And then lastly, abandoning wrath. Abandoning wrath. And that is what Paul's getting ready to get into in the next uh, several verses. That's what we'll be talking about next week. When God says, okay, you want it? It's yours. Go for it. That's one of the scariest kinds of wrath that we can encounter in this life. Because God is so gracious. He's kind and He's patient and He will draw us in. Draw us in. He will send people our way to try to encourage us, challenge us, correct us. There are so many things that God may do to try to intervene, but eventually God will say, you want it, you got it. It's yours. And He will turn people over to their lust. Okay, And so that is abandoning wrath. All of these are very real. We see all of these in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So then, the question becomes, is it really necessary? Is God's wrath really necessary? Let me read to you from Grudem. This brings another attribute in. And we're dealing with the justice of God. The justice of God. Grudem says, God's righteousness or justice, those are synonymous, means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is Himself the final standard of what is right. As a result of God's righteousness, it is necessary that He treat people according to what they deserve. Thus, it is necessary that God punish sin. 
For it does not deserve reward, it is wrong and deserves punishment. When God does not punish sin, it seems to indicate that He is unrighteous unless some other means of punishment can be seen. And so what he's kind of getting at here is that because God is righteous, because He is just, He has to punish sin. He cannot let sin go unpunished. Now we all get that, right? That makes sense to us. Now if He doesn't punish sin, what does that seem to indicate? That He's unrighteous. That God is not just. Well, my brothers and sisters, is God just? Absolutely He's just. And in Genesis it says, Shall the judge of the earth not do right? Of course He's going to do right. And He has to deal with that which is wrong. He has to deal with sin. And so when He he makes that comment, He seems unrighteous unless there's some other means through which He's going to deal with sin. And I think He's alluding to the cross, guys. And that is the glory of the cross. Because that's where God's justice That's where God's righteous wrath and God's love and mercy collide. At the cross. That is where God could be perfectly holy and just in judging sin, but could be totally loving and merciful and forgiving sin. That is the only way that that can be reconciled. It happened at the cross. Oh, the glories of God. The unsearchable riches and treasures of Him who sits upon the throne, that He could do such a thing, that He could devise such a plan, that He could accomplish so great a salvation? Well, another question. Is this a New Testament concept? Yes or no? It's certainly an Old Testament concept. I think there's like 600 passages dealing with God's wrath in the Old Testament. What about in the New Testament? If someone asked you that, what would you say? Absolutely it is. Now, some people suggest, and they will today, that the God of the Old Testament is not the same God in the New Testament. They'll say the God of the Old Testament was a mean God, He was a harsh God, He was a wrathful uh, God of vengeance, but the New Testament God is not like that. Two different gods. That is patently false. Some have gone so far as to suggest that God has evolved. Seriously, God has evolved. He may have been like that back then, but He has changed. He has since learned better. And as the culture has changed, and as we have grown, and we've come to realize and and know better than that, God has too. God got with the program. Maybe those things were bad back then, but He's come to realize the error of His ways. Now, people really believe that kind of stuff. Isn't that ridiculous? But here's the thing. Here's another attribute. God is immutable. comes from the word mutate. God does not mutate. God does not change. He is exactly the same as He has always been and will always be. If God could change, He would not be God. To say that God could grow for the better is to admit some sort of weakness or fault or, or insufficiency in Him in the first place. God does not change. He will never change. He cannot change. And so He's not going to say, yeah, I felt that way then, but not anymore. I've really kind of gotten with the program. doesn't work that way. And so God's wrath is also referenced numerous times in the New Testament. I just did a kind of a cursory glance and a concordance 
there are a lot of times when the word is used for man's wrath, and I'm going to address that in a minute, but I think approximately I saw 27 times in the New Testament. There's 27 books in the New Testament. So, you know, you could say on average at least once per book, although in certain books it's, it's mentioned more than others. Uh, but it's a New Testament concept. In the very beginning of Matthew, wrath is mentioned. It's referred to as an unquenchable fire. Now I have a question. Do you know who said it and who they were talking about? Anybody know? John the Baptist said it and he was talking about Jesus. He says this in uh, Matthew 3, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In verse 12, speaking of Jesus, he says, His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so John the Baptist is talking about the day when Jesus will come and He will separate. The Bible uses language like the sheep from the goats, believers from the unbelievers. The Bible uses language like wheat and the chaff. Okay, And that, that they will be separated. And He uses this language that Jesus will take the wheat and keep that and the rest will be burned with unquenchable fire. Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 and chapter 5, verse 9 says this, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. For God did not appoint us to wrath, speaking of Christians, those who have put their faith in Christ, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the New Testament makes crystal clear wrath is coming. And the only way of escape is through Jesus Christ our Lord. And John the Baptist even said that Jesus Himself would execute wrath. And so I wanted to take a minute and talk a little bit about the, the wrath of Christ. Because that's the thing that people try to say, well, God in the Old Testament, God of wrath. Jesus, love. Okay, there's none of this wrath stuff, right? Not with Jesus. Well, I would say that this has a lot to do with Jesus' first coming and His second coming. All right? When Jesus came the first time, His mission was to secure salvation for the world, for the lost. That was His objective. John chapter 3 says this, verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Verse 36, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And so what he's saying here is that Jesus came to save men and women from the wrath of God. That's why He came. He came as a humble servant. He came as the humble King. He came to die for the sins of men and women so that we could be set free, so that we could be born again, so that we could be brought into the, the church of Jesus Christ, so that we could have eternal life and worship God forever in glory. That was why He came the first time. But I think it's worth noting that even when He was here, He demonstrated wrath on a couple of occasions. When He went into the temple, that was His first public display. He entered into His public ministry 
And then he went to the temple and he found all kinds of uh, con, art, con artist stuff happening there in the uh, temple. And what did he do? He made a whip and he started tossing tables over and whipping people out of the temple. That was a, a very small picture of God's wrath right there in the temple by none other than Jesus. And you know who talked about hell and wrath more than anyone else in the Bible with more vivid language and pictures than anyone else in the Bible? Guess. Jesus did. Okay, so we get what we believe here, if nowhere else, from our Lord Himself. It was that important to Him that He had to make that big of a deal about it. Now, His second coming. When Jesus returns, He will come as an agent of God to execute His wrath in part on this earth. And there are a couple of uh, verses in particular I'd like to read to you to that end. Revelation 6 15 and 17, it says, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, that is to say everybody, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath has come and who is able to stand? They're crying out that the mountains would fall on them and shelter them from the wrath of Jesus. I find that so interesting, the wrath of the Lamb. I don't generally look at a goat or a lamb and think, oh man, and like, you know, freak out in terror. But it's really a, a picture here of the, He came as the Lamb who took away the sins of the world. He'll come back as the Lamb who will execute God's judgment on the earth. Revelation 19, this is a really graphic picture here. Revelation 19, verse 15 and 16, it says, Now out of his mouth, this is speaking of Jesus, goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule with a rod of iron. Right here, listen to this. And he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That phrase there that he treads the wine press and the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. We know what a wine press is, right? I mean, we live in Napa Valley, okay? We know. And you got the, uh, it escapes me, the wine crusher guy out there on 29, right? We see him twisting that, that, that uh, I don't even know the language. He's crushing the grapes, okay? Well, that's a picture here of what Jesus is going to do to people when He comes in on His war horse and starts trampling corpses on the ground and blood is splattering everywhere and skulls are being crushed in and there's so much blood that it's splattering all up on His horse and all over Him. He is treading the winepress and the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. I said that's a very graphic picture. The first time I ever heard a pastor teach on that, he was literally galloping back and forth on the stage, like imitating this. Kids had nightmares. He got in trouble from the parents and stuff. And so, you know, I won't do all that. But I'm just making the point. God is a God of wrath. He has always been that. It's much because of who He is as a holy God, and, and He will still execute wrath. And so, I want to kind of bring this thing to a close here, but I just want to make a, a couple of quick points. Man's wrath. God has the right to execute wrath. We do not. 
And he makes that very clear. You know, there are some things that God is allowed to do that we are not allowed to do. And that's a different study for a different time. But one of them is we're not to be, uh, we're not to exercise wrath. James 1, 19 through 20, it says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So this is in the context of trials. So when we're going through trials, we're not allowed to blow up or explode or lose our temper because that does not produce, that does not demonstrate God's righteousness when man executes wrath, okay? And then Romans 12, verses 19 through 21, it says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. Okay, so we're not to avenge ourselves if we've been done wrong, we're supposed to put wrath aside. It says, For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So God keeps account, and He will pay, He will exercise wrath on that which was wrong. Verse 20, it says, Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So it's God's place to judge. It's God's place to execute wrath. It is not ours. We're told that God, He will make all things right in His time. But we're to love our enemies. We're to serve our enemies, to pray and to bless our enemies. Alright, wrath versus chastening. This is another thing I thought that I needed to make clear uh, in this setting. There is a difference. For those who have not had their sins paid for on the cross, you are under God's wrath to this very hour. The Scriptures are very clear about that. And it's a terrible place to be. It's a terrible place to be. I remember being underneath that dread. I remember being underneath that, that torment of knowing that if I were to die at that place at that time, where I would go and what I would have to, who I would have to stand before. But if you have been, if your sins have been judged on the cross. See, your sins have been judged. If you're a Christian, God's wrath has been executed. Your sins have been judged on the cross. They are gone. God has removed them as far as the east is from the west. You are no longer an enemy. You are no longer dead in your trespass and sin. You no longer have to give an account for the wrong that that you have done. It has been judged on the cross. And now you are underneath God's loving discipline. God's loving correction. And I I say this because sometimes Christians think I'm being judged. If something's going wrong in their life, I have done something wrong, I've sinned, I blew it, now God is punishing me. That is not the case. Okay? God does not punish you. Okay? God loves you as a heavenly father, a loving heavenly father, and he will correct you to draw you back to himself. To, to grow you, to mature you, but He is not punishing you, okay? It is not God's wrath. His wrath has been poured out at the cross. And Hebrews chapter 12 talks a lot about this, especially verse 6. It says, For whom the Lord loves, He chastens. And so if you are a child of God, then God will correct you. Let me say this. If you, if you are a child of God, but you can live in habitual sin all the time, and it doesn't seem like there's any kind of correction coming your way, it doesn't seem like God is chastening you at all, and you're totally content and, and 
at peace with carrying on in sin, the Bible says that you need to examine yourself and see if you really are in the faith. Because that sounds more to me like when God just gives somebody over and lets them do what they want to do without any intervention on His part. And so I would ask you to consider that very carefully. If you name the name of Christ, do you know God's loving discipline? I do. I think most of us in here would say that we do. And that's important, and that's a great thing. If God is disciplining you, that's because He loves you. That's because He cares about you, because He's committed to you. And it talks about that, you know, He who has began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, closing thoughts, kind of closing uh, applications here, if you will. One, if your sins have not been forgiven at the cross, you should be afraid. And I'll just be very candid with you about that. You should be afraid. Um, you know, the Bible says that perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. Because we know the perfect love of God as sons and daughters of God, there is no more torment. There is no fear of judgment. Perfect love has cast that out. But if you don't know God, if you haven't been forgiven of your sins, if you haven't put your trust in Christ as your Savior then you are underneath God's wrath. And Jesus said, God's wrath abides on you. And that is very serious. I can't emphasize to you enough how serious that is. I can't make you understand how serious that is. But God has seen fit to reveal this to you and through His grace and mercy reveal His Son to you and to give you a chance to turn, to repent, to put your trust in Christ and to experience His salvation, not His wrath. So I would, with all of my heart, with all of my might, plead with you, turn. Turn from your sin. Turn to Christ. Put your trust in Him for salvation. May your sins be paid for by Him. May your sins be judged upon the cross. May you not be the one who has to pay for your own unrighteousness. If your sin has been forgiven, you should, be, you should have tremendous gratitude. How often do you stop to just simply thank God that you have been forgiven? How often do you stop in light of God's wrath say, God, thank You that I'm not under Your wrath. My sins have been paid for. Now I am under grace. I'm under love. I'm under Your mercy. That's something that we should be thanking God for all the time. That should never get old. If we understand God's wrath, we ought to be compelled to share Christ, compelled to share Jesus. And at times I'll even pray, God, help me to be so gripped by hell and wrath that it would really stir up this urgency within me. Because sometimes I feel, I don't know if you can relate with this, but sometimes I feel lax in that, lazy even. I, I'm, I'm not compelled to go out with urgency as I wish that I were. And so I pray that God would help me to understand that to the degree that I would actually go out and try to love people and share Christ with them with a greater urgency. And, and let me say this. Imagine if God did not have wrath. Just think about that for a second. If God did not get angry at sin, if God did not punish sin, what would that say about God? What would that tell us about Him? One, either He doesn't care. God doesn't care about injustice, wrong, sin. Or 
he may even delight in it. Now, how horrible would it be to have an all-knowing, all-powerful, never-changing, always-present, eternal God who doesn't even care about sin, doesn't even care about injustice, doesn't even care about wrong, or might even delight in it. That would be... I can't even put words to how awful that would be. But that is simply not the case. Because of God's wrath, we know that He hates injustice. You know, for us guys, it might be challenging to understand why God allows certain things to happen. Can you relate with that? I doubt there's anyone in this room who's ever thought has not thought, why would God let that happen? Well, I can tell you, it's not because He doesn't care. It's not because He doesn't care. I don't know why certain things happen that happen, but I do know this. God does care because He is just, holy, a God of anger and wrath, and that He will make things right. He will set things right in His time because the judge of the earth will do right. There's no other way. And so it's important for us not to erase God's wrath or, or be embarrassed by God's wrath. It's most critical that we're not under God's wrath, but we should praise God for His wrath. We should thank God that we as Christians have been saved from His wrath. We should let His wrath propel us forward to reach out and love and serve the lost. Amen? And we'll close with that. So let me uh, pray for us. Father, we love You, and this indeed is such a, a challenging topic. Uh, but I, I do pray, God, that You are glorified as we, we entertain very high thoughts of You, God. As we have a very high view of Your holiness, of Your justice, of Your righteousness, O oh God. I thank You that we have been saved from Your wrath. And that's exactly what we've been saved from, Father. Nothing less than that, God. You have saved us from Your own divine judgment and wrath. And You accomplished this at the cross. Jesus, thank You that You were willing to drink the cup. Thank You that You drank the cup of God's wrath. You asked that question at the cross. If there's any other way, let this cup pass from Me, Father. But not My will, Your will be done. And Jesus, You drank that cup. You drank the cup of God's wrath on our behalf and we praise You for it. We worship You in this place today. And we thank You that our salvation is in You, Lord Jesus. We worship You in Jesus' name. Amen.